I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 123. All right. First up, I have a recommendation from Netflix, and it's called Cursed. And it's like a prequel to Arthur and Merlin and all of that. And I like binged it in, I don't know, three days, maybe two and a half. And I say half because, you know, like I have weird hours. I really thought you were going to recommend that 365 shit. I've already talked about it, I thought. Oh, maybe. I don't know. I still haven't watched it. You're doing a disservice to you and Colby alike. And also, if you're like me and you loved Supermarket Sweep, that's on Hulu. I saw that and I was like, oh, God, Donna's going to die. I've already been watching it. That, Saved by the Bell, all the things. Hulu is freaking delivering during covid they even have the college years, but I'm trying. Damn. Yeah, I'm trying to do it in order. They have all the Brady Bunches and the Golden Girls too. Okay, well, Brady Bunch, blech. Golden Girls, yay! But you've already watched that mm, twenty five thousand times because she owns a complete series. You're not wrong. I know what else isn't wrong. Look, every week I try <laughs> very hard to come up with the lamest way. To segue into Patreon. Well, you succeed, ma'am. Well, good. Mm-hmm. If they're wrong, I don't want to be right. I almost said that. And then I was like, too far. <laughs> <laughs> I just take that step right over the line. Well, take that step with Jackie W. from Idaho. Shannon H. from Ohio. Amanda S. from Washington. Monica V. from New Mexico. Faith Ann H. from Washington. And Rebecca L. from Mississippi. Hey, girl, hey. Thank y'all all so much for joining Patreon. If you want an episode shout-out, head on over to patreon.com slash theapcpodcast. Ooh, one quick thing I wanted to do business-wise. So because of COVID, those of you who have ordered some merch, it has taken a while for, like, some ra- like random stuff. It's not even – it doesn't even make sense which ones are random. But if you ordered merch and it's – taken longer than you expect please reach out so we can look into it but nine times out of ten it's because of covid all right let's just jump right in picture it we are going across the pond to the 1800s oh shit we're taking a time machine we're going back we're going to talk about sarah rachel russell she goes by rachel so rachel was born 1814 and We don't really know much about her childhood and her family. Some say that she was from a Jewish family, but we'll touch on that a little bit later because it's maybe not. Rachel didn't have any formal education. In fact, she was illiterate, but she was very street savvy. She grew up very poor, again, from what we know of. So, remember, we're talking early to mid-1800s, you know, as she's growing up into an adult. At the time, women were a commodity. You know, it wasn't women. In fact, it was illegal for women to have jobs, like, outside of the home that were profitable. The whole point of life for women was to get married and have kids and to marry up, marry money, marry, you know, so that you're taken care of. Because if your husband dies or your husband leaves you, you need their money 
yeah. to be able to survive because you're not supposed to work. Yeah. There's a slam poet. Her name is Glory. And she has this whole thing, and I'm just, like, snaps all around because it's about, like, her being a bigger girl on Tinder and all the things, you know. Mm-hmm. But then she's, like, you know, everyone says, like, you need more confidence and all of that. Not to her, but just in general in society to women. But then c- when you have confidence, it's looked down upon and you're you're called vain and all of that. And she basically says, like... Confidence is so negative in other people's eyes because when a woman's confident and she is assured of herself and knows her worth, it's harder to commoditize her. Mm-hmm. And it, I was just like, holy shit, you're right. Because all the magazines and all of the stuff that's trying to sell you on how to make you better, like, you're like, no, because I am enough. Well, That goes along with this story. Oh, shit. Rachel had been married a couple of times. The background's a little fuzzy. Again, 1800s. We know that one time she was married and he passed away. And then another time she was married and they say that he was like lost at sea. I don't know. It was kind of like whenever I was reading some of the husband stuff, I was like, did she kill the first husband? Like, right. I don't know. I just was like, hmm, that's weird. Did she kill him? Well, but then the second husband was like lost at sea. Well, then the third time, they ended up not getting married, but she did take his last name, and so did her seven kids. Seven? Yes. And they say, like, of course, like, she took his last name to to give the appearance of being married because, hello, you can't shack up with somebody in 1850. Or whatever. Yeah. Seven kids. Mm-hmm. Six girls and one boy. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. Well, like I said, she was very street savvy. She would work a little bit. Like, she was a fortune teller for a minute. She would sell secondhand clothes. Some say that she had a stint as a sex worker. However, some articles say that she would, like, get women and take them to, like, the brothels or wherever. She was basically trafficking women. Mm. And she would get money for that. While she was doing okay to, like, you know, kind of make the ends meet, it wasn't good enough. She wanted to be part of the aristocratic society, all the things. Rachel decided that in order to gain that notoriety, gain that entrance into the aristocratic society, she had to capitalize on their weaknesses. And one way in which she could do that is to target women, women who wanted to remain beautiful because she knew women wanted to remain beautiful because women are seen as a commodity and beauty is one of the most important parts in order to catch and keep a husband back in the day. In some situations now, but for sure back then. Well, makeup was frowned upon at the time. People would say that, you know, when you look at the Bible, it was like all the Jezebels and all that in the Bible that that wore makeup. And then Queen Victoria even took a stance saying that makeup is only used for the theater and by sex workers. And so women of 
basically good standing should not be wearing any type of makeup. But as the women aged on the day-to-day life, they wanted makeup to make themselves feel more beautiful and be more attractive to their husbands. So she saw this as her in. Because if she could sell cosmetics and beauty treatments and all of that, she could get her foot in the door. But once her foot was in the door, she had them. Because they had to keep the fact that they were buying cosmetics and doing all these beauty treatments hush-hush. So now she had them and she could blackmail them if she wanted to. So it was a win-win. She would get money from the treatments. And then if they started talking shit, well, now she's got something on them. She grew up in the East End of London, and she knew that every year, all of these different women took like a pilgrimage to London to buy the best clothes, hair stuff, you know, all the things to make themselves more attractive to the eligible bachelors, i.e. get a man. So Rachel is like, here's my chance. Rachel decides to open this beauty salon on Bond Street, which is in the Mayfair district, where this is where all the people always went. Yeah. When they were going to get all the the good good to catch them a man. Yeah. That's the place to go. Well, she was right in the middle of it. Hmm. When she opened this beauty salon slash cosmetic place, all the things, she started calling herself Madame Rachel. Because there was a French star who was... Madame Rachel. <laughs> you, you liked my French version. <laughs> so she was riding on her coattails because she was this famous beauty that everyone wanted to emulate. Well, Rachel had a bit of a leg up on the competition when it came to concoctions for like skincare, like, you know, creams and lotions and salves and all of that. Because her first husband was an apothecary's assistant. Mm. So she knew a little bit about mixing shit. Part of Rachel's shtick that was supposed to make her more marketable, it was like a whole routine. She wore like this like gorgeous like black dress. She had a crystal talisman necklace that she wore. She was very intriguing. And then all of the products that she sold would have these like amazing names based on where they supposedly came from. She had things like rejuvenating Jordan water that obviously was water supposedly from the Jordan River. And it would cost in today's money a thousand pounds. Holy Hannah. Yes. Her most famous thing was magnetic rock dew, and that was to remove wrinkles. The other thing is she would have this royal Arabian face cream. So she would use all these, again, names that for the location that these materials supposedly came. She would also claim that some of her clients were royalty and that Arabian princesses and all of this would use the same ingredients and the same creams and so forth and so on. And look, she was all about the showmanship. She was a salesperson through and through. She had this young boy who was black wear a turban and 
like be part of her sales process to like help greet them at the door and bring them perfumes and all that because she wanted to create the appearance that he was from the Middle East and that, you know, that he was like bringing her all these things and all the fake shit. The other thing that Madame Rachel did, she, again, while she was illiterate, she relied heavily on her daughters to write things for her. She was in the advertising game before people even knew what advertising was. She would have her daughters write the advertisements that she dictated and would put those in papers and that sort of thing to get the word out. So it's like once she started having a few people come, obviously word of mouth too, because it was like this hush-hush club that people were in. Like, you know what I picture? Do you remember on the movie Death Becomes Her? You know the lady that they get the the potion from that like keeps them from dying? Like how she had like this whole like jewel thing and she pins it on. Like it was it was very much that to me. Like that's exactly how I picture how Madame Rachel operated. Okay, I can picture exactly that. Tries to make it seem again like quote unquote exotic and all the things. Well, people started coming in droves. She was making a fuck ton of money. So women would come like under cloaks and all that because, again, it was like you were not supposed to wear cosmetics. You were not supposed to do any of that. And so did they do it? Yeah, but it was all secretive. Madam Rachel would also allow women to purchase these treatments on credit because women didn't have their own money. They had to spend their husband's money. And if they didn't have it right then, or they had spent too much, they didn't want to ask their husband for more money. She would say, Oh, that's okay. You can buy it on credit. And then she would randomly be like, okay, your money's due. Like, where is it? And if they were like, well, I don't have the money. She's like, well, then you can't get any more treatments. They'd be like, but, 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 you know, they, because the women became addicted to the treatments. And so she'd be like, well, then you got to give me something in its place. So women would give her their valuables, their jewels, their anything that was of equal value of their debt to her. So she was getting all these valuables from these women. She would pawn some of them, keep some of them. And by this point, she's making so much money. She's sending her kids to these like amazing schools. Like her son went to medical school. Her One of her daughters went to this opera school, operatic school, I think is what it's called, but something about the opera. Her store, Temple of Beauty, started doing so great that she opened a spa in the building next door named Arabian Baths. So picture like a spa like we would have now. But it also had a section for more discreet services. So it was a place where women could actually come and have sexual rendezvous and it be a secret. On the flip side of that, there was actually a place where men could pay and watch women in these baths through like peepholes that the women didn't know were there. This lady was an entrepreneur in the worst way possible. Yes. So women could, again, pay for these secret rendezvous. 
And she had men that were watching women bathe without their knowledge. So now she has all these people that are tangled in her web of secrecy that she can now blackmail if they stray, if they don't pay or they don't do all of this or they don't give her as much money as she wants. She can do whatever she wants to now. Remember how I said that women could basically have IOUs for her, you know, as part of their debts for treatments that they didn't have the money for right then and that they would pay with some of their like jewels and all of that. Well, there was one of her patrons, Georgina Elizabeth, and she was the Countess of Dudley. She had racked up some bills that she couldn't pay, but she had this one set of diamonds. And it's said that they were like irreplaceable set of diamonds worth a ton of money. Well, she gave them to Rachel as payment for it. But then it's like, okay, well, where did your beautiful diamonds go? So she gives them to Rachel. Rachel basically pawns them off. And then to cover her tracks, Georgina Elizabeth says that they were stolen. So her husband's none the wiser. He thinks that someone broke into their house and stole her jewels. Meanwhile, she had given them to Rachel to pay her debt, and Rachel sold them. Those diamonds were never seen again. So let's talk a little bit about the products that she sold. One of her services that she offered was called enameling of the faces. So she was not the first person to do this, nor was she the only person in town doing this. But again, she was really good at advertising. So she would advertise that her enameling lasted longer and her enameling was better and blah, blah, blah. So women would come to her and she would charge more. So what is this? Basically, they would put this, what I'm picturing as like nair on their face to get all of the hair and like peach fuzz on your face, get it off of it. And then she would use alkaline water to then wipe the face and then get this thick paste to fill in the wrinkles in your face and then finish it off with a little bit of rouge and some powder. But guess what? What? That paste is made with arsenic and lead. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. As were mm, a lot of the treatments. Mm-mm-mm. Because here's the thing. At this time, tuberculosis, rampant, and did you know, okay, you know how like having very pale skin, being very thin and having very pale skin back then was like a thing with like the blush, right? Okay, that's because of tuberculosis. Like really? it, be- Yeah, it like became this standard of beauty that women wanted because people who had tuberculosis when they would their fever would spike they'd get like the rosy cheeks lips would be a little pinker you know but they're pale and people liked the look of it so with this enameling it would like whiten the face spruce up the cheeks a little all the things i think it was the arsenic and the creams that would do this but it would actually like bleach out the face some so it would make them look paler which they wanted and in these lower doses it would actually create addictions to the creams. That's why I'm not sure if it was arsenic. Of course, I forgot which one it was. Mm. But it would create these addictions so the women couldn't get enough of the treatments because it was like this 
addiction that it was like an itch they couldn't scratch any other way. You know, it's not like it was alcohol and they could just drink a different type of alcohol. You know, it was this specific chemical in these creams. Not to mention that some of these women were slowly being poisoned. Much like, allegedly, her first husband in right. my mind. Right. I told you that's... Yeah. I really think that she did something to him. Uh, allegedly, uh, none of her descendants sue us, please. Also, the lead and all of the chemicals that were in the creams and salves and lotions and yada, 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 would also cause kidney failure. So it would, like, make these women excrete a scent from the kidney failure. So it was like they were getting this addiction to the creams, but also they're excreting this smell, so they want the perfumes that she's selling. So it was just like a revolving door of her keeping them as customers. Yeah. I mean, she was basically a turnkey solution, but she was causing the problems that she had the solutions for that really weren't solutions. Nor were they problems. Like... In the beginning. Yeah, she was causing them. Look, this bitch knew all the shit. When I, th- she had the market fucking cornered. She knew how to advertise. She knew how to be a salesperson so that she could create this need in women for these products. She also had this like brochure slash book on the arts of beauty. And it had all of these quote-unquote beauty secrets in it. And of course, the only place you could buy said book was in her shop. So if you wanted these beauty secrets, guess what? You got to come in. And guess what? She is such a good salesperson that when she greets you at the door, trust that you're going to buy something. Okay, back to some of the products that the women used. And I'm sure that she even had some male customers for that matter, too. But powders were mixed with lead and mercury. Waters were mixed with urine. Gross. I mean, if you're into a golden shower, that's fine. But you have to fucking consent to that shit. Oh, I forgot to tell you this, too. Rachel was in her 50s when most of this took place. But she told everybody that she was in her 60s and that all of this stuff worked so well and that's why she looked so young for her age wow the other story that she told that kind of drew people in was she said when she was younger that she had an illness in which her fever spiked and her fever was so high that the doctor shaved her head to help lower her fever and you know long Hair was a sign of beauty back then, and so she's very upset that her hair had to be cut off. And so the doctor was like, look, don't worry about it. Here is some cream that's going to make your hair grow back tenfold. Can I get that? (laughs) So when all these people met her, and she has this hair like down her back, and it's this beautiful hair, they're like, oh my God, I want that cream. And that was kind of what got her foot in the door at the beginning. And of course, over time, the story changed. It became she almost died. It became 
she created the cream. It became her entire family almost died. You know, the story changes based on her audience and what she's trying to accomplish with them. A few years into these shenanigans, Rachel gets a new client, and her name is Mary Tucker Bordadell. And Mary was in her early to mid-60s, and she was a widow. Her husband was a soldier who had recently died. He left her enough money from what he made and his pension to keep her living this military wife's lifestyle for the rest of her life. But the one thing that she was missing that Rachel capitalized on the most was Mary's need for love. Mary was lonely and she wanted to find that companionship, but she knew that with her age, it was going to be difficult for her to find someone quote unquote appropriate for her given her status in life and her age. Mary starts participating with all of Rachel's schemes and gimmicks and enameling and this and that and this cream and all the things, all the perfumes, all the everything. And she does this for two years. She is getting to a point where she is having a hard time covering the cost. She has now spent like a fifth of the fortune that her husband left her. What the fuck? Yes, we're talking in today's money, hundreds of thousands. Buku money. Yes. Look, I watch TikTok skincare shit. I get it. I buy all the shit too. And I'm like, mm, need to be on a budget. But I'll tell you right now, I would have been a customer of Rachel's. I would not. I would have been a customer. One, because I'd be a spinster looking for somebody. Be like, I need to look uh, 20 years younger. Okay? Meanwhile, I'm the girl who still doesn't wash my face before I go to bed. I know, I know, I know. Don't come for me. It's stupid. It's terrible. And I'm going to have wrinkles so bad. I'm already getting them. But I'm too fucking lazy. And I'm going to wish I had later in life. (laughs) So Mary has spent all of this money with no results. And... Rachel, being savvy, business shrewd thing that she is, is like, hmm, Mary's getting tired of this. I got to flip the script. So Mary comes in to end it all, be like, look, I am done. I'm not using any more of your shit. It doesn't fucking work. And Rachel's like, guess what? You know how you've been bathing across the way at my Arabian bathhouse? Well, uh, there is a guy that's been eyeing you and thinks you're very beautiful and he wants to marry you. Oh, by the by, he's a lord, but uh, he just hasn't come to tell you yet. And so Mary's like, hold the phone. Skirt. There's a fucking titled man that likes me. Rachel tells her his name is Lord Ranala, and he's very interested in you, and he thinks you're very beautiful, but, again, he's of, like, noble blood, so his family doesn't really want him to be with a commoner. She's like, but I'm gonna hook y'all up. So, the next time Mary comes to her shop, she walks in, and there stands a man, and he turns around, and he is so handsome, 
and it's him, Lord Ranelagh. And he tells Mary, he thinks that she's so beautiful and that he wants to marry her. But like I said before, she's a commoner. His family will not approve of it. But maybe, just maybe, if she does some more of Rachel's treatments and gets a little more beautiful, his family will be okay with it. Can I get a big fuck you? Right. A fuck you. If you, oh, fuck. And he's like, I'll marry you when you get a little more beautiful for, again, his family. And she says, well, can you help me pay for it? And he's like, I can't help you now, but when we get married, I will share all of my wealth with you. And she says, okay. Well, cue Rachel. And she says, we got to do an enameling treatment. By the by, this is going to cost you a hundred grand in today's money. Holy Hannah. Yeah. But guess what? The Lord was a fake. Of course. Some say that Lord Ranelagh was an actual person. Some say that it's a name and a title made up by Rachel. But the person who played said Lord was actually someone that Rachel was blackmailing, who was a peeping Tom at the bathhouse. What the fuck? So she says, young sir, come here. What the fuck? I'm going to blackmail you unless you pretend to be this guy. Okay? And he's like, nobody can know I'm a peeping Tom at the bathhouse. So, okay. So he plays this character to try to hook Mary and to spend him more money. So when they met, as he goes to leave, Mary's like, when will I see you again? And he just like smiles and is like, I'll write you. I mean, like, he was the O-fucking-G fuck boy right he had all of the fucking lines to not actually answer the fucking question mm-hmm. and she was so swept up in this handsome younger man who she thought was a lord was going to marry her and that he thought that she was beautiful and that he wanted to marry her and so she had a whole new resilience i guess you could say to continue on with all of the treatments that rachel had to offer Throughout the process of beautifying Mary to prepare her for marriage, anytime Mary would grow weary of it and, well, leery of her friend Rachel, Rachel would provide a letter. And it would be, oh, I love you and I can't wait to marry you. We're going to get married. We're going to have a ceremony by proxy. I'm going to get married over here and have someone standing in as a proxy for you. You're going to do it over there. Have someone stand as a proxy for me. And then we'll be married. And no matter what my family says, it won't matter because we'll be married anyway. So Rachel's like, oh, by the by, (laughs) I'm a wedding planner too. So. Oh my goodness. Uh Uh-huh. Jill of all trades. Yes. So she starts planning this wedding, spending fuck tons of Mary's money on clothes and all the things. And look, Mary was not, while she was conned in the worst of ways, she wasn't completely fooled. She noticed things. She noticed that 
every time she got a letter, the three times she got a letter, it was in different penmanship. And they were always signed by William. And she said, who's William the first time? And Rachel says, oh, (laughs) that's his pen name. Because he doesn't want people to know that y'all are planning this in secret. So again, Rachel, just like old fuckboy Lord Farquaad, had a fucking excuse and answer for everything. Well, one day, Mary gets arrested. She gets arrested for not paying on debts. Wow. And she's like, what the fuck? And it's like to this random thing. And she's like, I didn't buy anything there. So she's in the slammer. And she calls Rachel and she's like, what the fuck? Come help me. Like, what is this? It was for stuff Rachel had bought. Oh, my gosh. But Rachel bought it, quote, unquote, for Mary's upcoming nuptials. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So Mary's like, you got to come up here and you've got to explain what the fuck is going on because I didn't buy this. I didn't know I had this debt to be paid. Well, Rachel's like, okay, okay, okay. I'm going to come up there and I got this form I want you to sign and it will turn your assets over to me so that I can pay your debts and get you out of jail. No, honey, no. And Mary goes, hmm, that's weird. She says, hmm, I don't think I'm going to sign that. Good. I thought you were going to say, that's weird, but okay. Yeah, no. She was like, "Mm, I don't think I'm going to sign that. I don't think I'm going to wait. Because here's the thing. A A lot of Mary's money was tied up in assets, stocks, bonds, jewelry, that kind of shit. It wasn't necessarily cash. So, Rachel had already taken all of this jewelry from her and even gotten this, like, I don't know if this is the right word for the 1800s, but, like, stock trader person to, like, help her cash in her stocks and bonds so that she could have money to pay Rachel. So, she'd already done all of this shit with her money and her her wealth. I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars that she's given to Rachel. I just want to be like, Rachel, at what point is enough enough? You know? Yeah. See, that's the problem is that she had a goal, succeeded that, but... It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. Greed got the best of Uh her. It's never enough. When you go in with ill intent, when you get it, it's never enough. So Mary sits in jail for a couple of days. She gets out, kind of squares it up. She gets arrested again for, guess what, a tailor that was altering her supposed wedding dress, but was really actually altering Rachel's clothes. Oh my gosh. And so she's like, you know what? Fuck this bitch. And she got an attorney. And it took another two years, but eventually Rachel went to trial for the fraud. Good. And it was a lot of he said, she said, Rachel, during the trial, even said that Mary's lying. Mary was actually a sex worker. And she's like, "Uh, no, the fuck I wasn't. You took all my money. Here are the letters. You said that Lord Farquaad liked me, and he didn't. And who is he? And when they put him on the stand, he was like, I've never seen either one of these women. Oh, my gosh. And you know what? They believed him. Because, yes, because of the time, and he was a man. Uh Uh-huh. But 
Mary did have some proof. She had the letters, and the court was even like, wait, this is clearly written by three different people. That didn't make you go, hmm? She was like, I mean, it did, but at that point, she's so deep. And honestly, you see it a lot in sales even today. They create an urgency. A, well, you got to buy it now because if you don't buy it, Lord Ronnelly is going to break up with you. He's not going to marry you if you don't buy this right now. Oh, wait, you need a wedding dress like now. Oh, wait, you need this cream right now. So it creates this sense of urgency. I actually saw something about the different like current generations like baby boomers, millennials, Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, you know, all of those and how baby boomers have an inherent trust in authority and millennials and Gen Z don't. And so that's part of the conflict too, is that people think, well, they don't respect authority, but they, they don't have an implicit trust in authority the way baby boomers do. And that's how it was then too. Mary Mm -hmm. immediately trusted her and the fake Lord because they were in a position in society that was quote unquote above her. And so there was that implicit trust. So eventually it came back and the jury found Rachel guilty and sentenced her to five years in prison. She served her five years. She was probably a kingpin in fucking jail, too. Oh, you know she was. Uh Uh-huh. So, okay, she got out of prison after five years. So this is 1872. And guess what she did? Same thing. Exactly. All the same shit. So she got sentenced to another five years in prison. And after serving just two years... She died on October 12th, 1880. And even up to and past her death, the prison was getting letters to Madam Rachel asking for her recipes. Oh, my gosh. So some people still believed. Wow. I want to know how much money she actually got in, mm-hmm. in cash and in, like, jewels and shit. But I want to know how many... People died from arsenic and lead poisoning. Yeah. And mercury poisoning. That is so crazy. I mean, at the very least, they died an untimely death. Like, it may not have been enough to like, okay, in a week you died, but I mean, it caused kidney failure, all that, you know, so it did in the long run kill them. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how many. You know what? Rachel would be... A leader of an MLM today. Yes. Like she so would. Or a cult. A cult. Well, you could say they're the same. So, not all MLMs are bad. Not all of them. That's multi-level marketing. So like, well, I'm not going to name companies, but. Yeah. You all know. You all get the. Not all are bad. Not all are bad, but there's some that are Legit bad. That yes, have it's like been, a, a fucking Ponzi scheme. Yeah. Like Herbalife has a whole documentary about it, how it was bad. Yeah. And like how, I mean, they got paid because they recruited people, not for selling the product. It was getting people to sell more product. and You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so it was like, who cares if the product's good? We just want you to get more people to push the product, but, like, we want more bodies to, you know, believe our whatever. And, you know, like, I don't know. I just feel like she 
I would buy her shit mm-hmm. on an MLM. Well, I mean, think about every time you've gone to buy a car or anything that involves negotiation. It's like a house or whatever. It's like, well, there's another buyer. There's another that, you know, and so mm-hmm. it's like you create that urgency to where, okay, well, you're going to make an impulse buy. You're going to buy it at that price because there's someone else waiting in the wings. When yeah. nine times out of 10, there probably isn't. And if there is, then it wasn't meant to be, you know? Yeah. Oh, I'm definitely an impulse buyer. Oh, me too. 100. Well, I'm a researcher, and so I know what I want, but I impulse buy on that when Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, no, I want to buy it. And then it's like, and then I bought it. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like a big purchase. Well, think about when we went and bought your car. You know, that was one of the things they did. They were like, Mm -hmm. look, because Donna has this Honda CRV, and the Honda dealership was like, look, we keep two Honda CRVs on the lot. We sell eight of them a week. You know, if you come back tomorrow, it will probably be gone. You know, and so yeah. it does, it creates this urgency of like, no, we have to buy it today. Yeah, and I didn't have Yolanda the Honda anymore, so it was urgent because it really we had was to replace urgent. the car that was no longer working. <laughs> oh God, we got you a good deal though. Yeah, just anybody that cons anybody, it makes me angry. Yes. To take money that people have worked hard for, Ponzi schemes, all, which I almost did him today. I was like, I don't want to do like a, because I want to do something different, you mm-hmm. know. But it just makes me so angry. Well, it, yes. But with Rachel, too, like she honed in on Mary at the end, mm-hmm. you know. And it's like, that's even worse when you like. When you really do con this one person. Yes. And it, you know what I mean? Like, it's bad when there's a lot of people. I'm not saying that. But it's like, her husband died. Mm-hmm. And you're playing on her vulnerability, but her isn't, insecurities. But isn't that all cons, though? Oh, for sure. They prey on someone who has had this tragedy. Your husband died or your partner died, so let's create a GoFundMe. And then they take all the money. Or You know what I yeah. mean? Or that is just when a con artist praise on people because that's when they're most the most vulnerable and the most willing to willing i hate to say willing to fall for it but susceptible to fall for it yeah so i mean i don't know i just fucking hate a con artist but like you know how i said like i would i don't think i would fall for a cult i would fall for rachel shit like hook line sinker like i gotta sell my car because uh i'm trying to look 20 years younger trying to catch a man well, and it's like at some point in everyone's life, and maybe for different reasons, we're all vulnerable for that to be conned into buying something, joining something, doing something. You know, we're all vulnerable at some points. And if you think you're not, you're fooling yourself because you are. Everybody has a weakness, mm-hmm. whether it be appearance. Not want to die alone, wanting to get married, wanting to lose weight, want anything, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, this was a good one. I mean, it was bad, but it was good. Thanks. I wanted something different. Okay. Tell me all about yours. I mean, but did you find any of her recipes? <laughs> okay. Get out. Get, tell your story. <laughs> well, my story has something in common with your story. Stalker. <laughs> I'm talking about a jail, and your girl went to one. (laughs) Okay, that's a stretch. Like, Stretch Armstrong stretch. That was very hard to say, by the way. Stretch Armstrong stretch. (laughs) 
But we are going back to the U.S. of A. for mine. So yeah, that's where the commonality ends. <laughs> and more specifically, we're going to Council Bluffs, Iowa. The gel we're going to cover was originally known as the Potawatomi County Jail. Hopefully I said that right. But it soon became known as the Squirrel Cage Jail. It was built in 1885 and was designed by William H. Brown and Benjamin F. Haw. It was very innovative for the time and it cost $30,000 in that day's money. The patent for this design was stated as the object of our invention is to produce a jail in which prisoners can be controlled without the necessity of personal contact between them and the jailer. How'd that go for them? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And also another alluring aspect of this design was that it boasted to provide maximum security with minimum jailer attention. Okay, how'd that go for him? Yeah. (laughs) And like word on the street, you know, it was like if a jailer could count and he had a trustee that he could trust, he could control the jail. So basically a Geico commercial where it's like, it's so easy a caveman could do it. The squirrel cage jail, it was one of 18 revolving jails but it was the only one that had three floors for prisoners. So picture a lazy Susan with jail cells on it. I was about to say, what do you mean revolving? Like mm-hmm. like, like those restaurants that are on top of buildings? And like they the spin? building doesn't revolve. It's inside. So a lazy Susan inside, one per floor. And it spins. Yes. I'm going to tell you more. Sometimes it was called a human rotary. Like, how cryptic does that sound? So the cells, they had 10 10 cells per Lazy Susan, basically. And the cells were pie-shaped. So, I mean, like, piece of pie-shaped, if you know what I mean. Oh, okay, like a triangle. Yeah, like a Trivial Pursuit board. Yeah, that's that's legit exactly what I was picturing, like... A piece, like your movable piece. Yeah, that's what it was. Okay, so they revolved around in a cage that had one opening on this Lazy Susan of a mechanism. It's kind of like those revolving doors at a hotel where you could only, like one person can come out at a time. The other ones, they're locked in. In order to let a prisoner out, Jailers would have to revolve the cells around with a hand crank until they got to that person and it was flush with that one door. And each floor had only one door. Today, the cells no longer rotate and somewhere said it would cost like $10,000 to get it in working condition again, which like, why would you really want that? But also, that means that some sales haven't been turned for more than 30 years. And also, the ones that haven't been turned then, they haven't seen the light of day in that long. Like, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. The front of the building had offices for the jailer or the superintendent. Like, we would call it the warden now. It had a kitchen, trustee sales, and a quarter for women who were housed there. 
And because the cells were escape proof, you only had to have one jailer. So this was like, oh my God, you know, like no working overhead, really. This is amazing. But here's the thing. The jailer had to be married because his wife had to cook. Shut the fuck up. I am not joking. I am not joking. Shut the fuck (laughs) up. Fuck those people. Right. Like now on an application and an interview, it's illegal to ask, are you married or do you have kids? Yeah. Like then it was like a fucking requirement. Yeah. On the first floor, there was a kitchen and the jailer's office and obviously the tin cells. The superintendent or jailer and his family lived in an apartment which was located on the fourth floor. So it's four stories, but three were for prisoners. The whole time you're talking, all I can think about is how claustrophobic I would be in that cell. Oh, for sure. For sure. Like, there's no way out in any jail cell, but like that, you have to wait for Uh someone to crank this thing Versus, like, slide your door open. Yeah. Oh, let me wait for the other nine people to get out of their cell before they make it to me. Yeah. Back to the apartment thing. It's because, like, back in the day, you lived where you worked. Well, and it's still like that now with some prisons. They have, yeah. you know, housing and stuff for the families and the of the corrections officers, like, on the land. Yeah. It's not, like, on the fourth floor of the prison, but it's on the land. Yeah. And most superintendents and their families, they lived on the fourth floor. It was more spacious. Obviously, it was more homey, all the things. But the last jailer, he moved his family's sleeping quarters to the third floor because he was just like, I am so freaking tired of walking from the fourth floor to the first floor, like to process inmates all night. I mean might be me like it's one it's one floor down and it's like well I mean it's on the way back up that really gets you so you put your kid with the inmates I mean cool what they did they took over what had been the women's cell for sleeping because I think that they were then moved off before this so it was still separate from the inmates but it was in another, like, holding cell, basically. And it was originally designed, the whole thing, to rotate continuously throughout the night. And it was by means of a water wheel in the basement. And that's how they said it earned the squirrel cage jail name. But so the whole thing was like, okay, well, all the prisoners could be watched from this central location. However, it was too heavy It never worked correctly, and so it would get stuck. (gasps) With the prisoners in their cells? Yeah. Shut the fuck up. Well, and so, I mean, it would just get stuck, and so it's like, uh, hasn't turned in a while, like, you know. So, let's say it got stuck, and it was stuck for, like, a day. I mean, can they still get to them to, like, give them food and stuff, or is it like... Nope, I'll tell you more about that later. Oh, shit. Foreshadowing the foreskin. (laughs) Yep. We hadn't said that in a while. I know. Well, eventually, the jailers were like, okay, it's getting stuck way too often. We're just going to have to hire someone to watch them at night. And so they hired a night guard who would, you know, manually crank the jail cells and all that. But another source I found... They said that it got the squirrel cage jail name 
by looking like like the cells looking like something you might hold a small animal in, you know, because they were small mm-hmm. with the cage around it, all the things. So who knows? Inmates who were in for minor offenses, they were on the first floor. That was the largest cells. Then on the second floor, they were smaller. And then again, third was even smaller. The worst offenders were on the third floor. Also, the women's cells were on the third floor, as was the hospital. But the women's were a little bit bigger, and the hospital was bigger than all of them. There was also a special designated place for children who were either incarcerated or were there because their parents were incarcerated. Oh, God. Yeah, and in that area, there's many carved names on the wall in childlike scribbles. Oh. Yeah. So a little bit more about the cells. Each housed two inmates and had a set of bunk beds because obviously it's a pie shape. They're not going to have separate beds. Right. You know, the cells were described as cold, dark, damp, and tiny. There was no other furniture than the steel cots on the wall and a small area in the back, the small section of the pie. Mm Mm-hmm. It had a hole, basically, in the back for their toilet. The prisoners did have a blanket, but there were no mattresses. So they just had a... What? Yeah, they just had a cold steel bed. There was one shower per floor with cold water only. The men were only allowed to shower once a week. And they had to do it with their clothes on. Because, basically, that meant that they were doing their laundry at the same time. What the fuck? Yeah. (laughs) Like, uh, I don't think, though. (laughs) I don't think that's how that works. Yeah. Oh, my God. So, if they did their laundry in the shower, think of how often their blankets got washed. Oh, Oh, God. Well, think about that. And now think about smoking was allowed in those caged areas where there's, like, no airflow, basically. So think about all of that, that staleness. Yes. Because, I mean, I don't care if you smoke, whatever. But I'm just thinking about the staleness, the, like, the stagnant air. Mm. Ugh. Well, so most of the inmates who did smoke, they would use the ash from their cigarettes to create art, like, i.e. graffiti. And it was mostly names, dates, and the length of their sentence. So, like, you know, Donna Elwin was here. Mm-hmm. 2020 was the year. Of hell. For sure. Sorry, this is a side tangent, but speaking of 2020 was the year from hell, a few people have said they listened to the last episode of 2019 and we're like, 2020 is going to be a great year. We were so hopeful. Uh Uh-huh. And it's like, oh, no, girl. So next time, like this December, we are not going to say 2021 is going to be a great year. Like we're not going to foreshadow that foreskin. No. We, mm mm-mm. It's so funny, too, because – that podcast I listened to, The Bitch Bible, she did the same thing. She was like, 2020 is the year of me. Like, I'm going to travel. I'm going to, because oh, she's God. like wanting, like she's going to have, a, want to have a kid soon. And so she's like, 
this is my year to live my life, do all the things that I like won't be able to do financially after I have a kid. Yeah. Mm-mm. And she lived in California, so she's been quarantined in her house the whole time. Damn. <sighs> okay, let's get back to their hell. And, like, seriously, they had a solitary confinement cell. I mean, other than not having a roommate, like, how could it possibly be worse? Right. It does get worse. <laughs> it was near the jailer's desk, and they used it more as, like, a timeout. So, you know, if the person who was coming in during the check-in process, they were resisting, you know, mouthing off or whatever, they would put them in there, let them cool off, whatever. And most people would only stay there, like, 30 minutes, an hour, but... Records show that one guy did spend 10 days in there. And I'm going to tell you what this is. The cell is as narrow as a doorway and only a couple of feet deep. And it has a steel door on one side and bars on the other. And, like, you had to stand up, basically. I mean, it's a doorway. Yeah. It's tiny. So... Either you stand or you sit crisscross applesauce. Yeah. And if you're a extra large pizza, good luck. Don't be rowdy because holy shit. Like my shoulders would be touching the sides. Yeah. Hell, I don't know if I could shimmy down to Sid. You know what it reminds me of? What? If anybody has ever been to Salem and been to the Witch Dungeon Museum, it reminds me exactly like the... Like done in the dungeon where the people who they thought were witches who were poor and their family couldn't pay for them a larger cell, that's exactly what their cells were like. It oh was my like gosh. it was like a standing up coffin. Wow. It's that is like exactly what it looks like. And the witch dungeon museum in Salem, like you go through a recreated dungeon and you get to see that. Wow. That's like exactly what it looks like. Wow. Well, as you've already guessed, this wasn't the best design ever. You know, the cells were escape-proof. That was a definite pro, but a con to that was if an inmate had an arm or a leg hanging out (gasps) and the jailer wouldn't know because they can't see them. Yeah, and they would crank it. It would break that arm or leg. Off. It would break it off. Mm Mm-hmm. Break or tear it off, yeah. But, I mean, how fast is this thing turning? Not super fast, but... But it happened. But it happened. And sometimes it would be on purpose, so... Swear I was just about to say, did they do it on purpose to get out of their cell? Yeah, so they could spend time in the hospital, that hospital room, because it was bigger than their cell. Oh, my God. Another thing, if it was jammed, there was a real risk of starvation for the people in the other nine cells. What the fuck? Yeah. Like, okay, if you were going to do this, like if you were going to make this this work, you would have to have it like a hubcap or like the spokes on a bicycle to where the center could reach every single like prisoner, yeah. every single cell and you, I mean, you could still obviously exit, but like they could stop. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that would be the only way for this kind of spokes design to work. 
Whew. But it wouldn't be secure. Like Right. It would you wouldn't yeah. be able to ensure that they didn't escape. Right. Well, the lazy Susan approach was used until 1960. Oh shit. Mm-hmm. And it was only then when a fire marshal was like, no. I'm banning this because a prisoner died in his cell and the cell block was jammed and his body, his fucking corpse, was stuck in that jail cell for two days. Fuck. Well, that's what I was going to say earlier. Like, I almost interrupted you to be like, so what happens if there's a fire? And then I was like, no, no, no. I don't want that to be part of the story, so I'm not going to guess it. Yeah. I mean, if there's a fire, you're fucked. There's no fire code here. Because, one... Not to throw shade at anyone, but no one is going to stand there and crank these yes these cells out exactly when there's a fucking fire and it's three floors, one jailer, like nah, mm-mm. but after that, after that incident, which was really sad, cell doors were cut into every cell. Could you imagine being one of the prisoners, like? That had been there for a long time, and then you get a jail, like you get a, you get a door cut in your cell. Like, can you imagine, like, just like, just the excitement, just yeah. the like relief. I still don't understand their plumbing situation. If their cell rotates, like they basically had a poop shoot. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, basically. My luck, I'd be pooping, and the son of a bitch would start turning. <laughs> In the early days of the jail, like, the worst of the worst was housed there. And so they were waiting execution. The last two men who were hung in Iowa spent their last hours in this jail. But soon it became holding cells for people who were awaiting trial for lesser crimes. It wasn't just the hardened criminals only. But like you mentioned before, it was so bad that people would do anything to get out. You know, I mean, again, hey, let me let my arm be ripped off so I can go to the hospital in the same prison, just a bigger place. For probably just a couple of days. Yeah. Well, there was one prisoner. His name was Willie Brown. He died trying to get a medical transfer. He ate glass. <gasps> mm-hmm. But he died. Oh, my God. But I think he died at the hospital. The hospital on the third floor or fourth floor or like that? No, actual an actual hospital. hospital, I think. But there were four people who died in that jail. Three were inmates and one was a police officer. How? So, one inmate had a heart attack. Another died by suicide because they hanged themselves in their cell. And then one prisoner, he fell from the third level of the jail cage because he was trying to write his name on the ceiling. Oh, shit. Yeah, and fell. Then in 1932... There was a farmer strike and 84 people were arrested. So the police were like heavily armed with machine guns because they didn't want any jailbreaks from like a mob coming or anything like that. Well, 
It wasn't that he was killed by um, like the crowd or anything like that. It was a random accident where he shot himself with the gun. Oh, shit. Yeah, it was just like chaos and everything, and he shot himself. But it was not on purpose. So did anyone ever actually escape? It's like they were so terrified that someone was going to. Did they? This is going to sound like we practice this, but we did not. We, you we know can we never don't. do it. Mm-hmm. You know we're never on top of things to practice nothing. I was going to say, I mean, we on top of some stuff. Yeah, well, not our lives. <laughs> Just our men. <laughs> <laughs> well, the one man. I'll be silent over here. (laughs) I'm back on Tinder and Bumble, y'all. So if y'all see me out there, just look the other way. Mind your business. Okay. But um, in the last few years of it being an operating jail, it was kind of a free-for-all. And you can see there's several patched holes in the walls where the inmates tunneled and were, you know, able to free themselves. And it was still like one one lone guard sitting in his office, you know, watching TV, sleeping, doing whatever, not caring because, you know, like it's escape proof and all of that. Mm-hmm. But no. So, yeah, people did it after, you know, everything stopped working. And, you know, like when it was up and working how it was supposed to no one escaped because there was no way they could. Yeah. But then once it stopped working how it was and they, when they cut the doors yeah. and things, which they should have done, that's, you know. Oh, abso-freaking-lutely. Yeah. Then that's when they were able to, yeah, jailbreak. The jail was in use until 1969. Then in 1971, before it was going to be torn down, the Council Bluffs Park Board saved it. And it was named to the National Register of Historic Places a year later in 1972. Then the Historical Society really put forth a huge effort into saving the jail in 1977. They're the ones who own and operate it today as a museum. The signatures and dates of a lot of the prisoners remain in the cell walls right now, you know, and you can see that. And today there's only three revolving jails that remain and they're all preserved as museums. I want to say first that it was featured on Ghost Adventures, but it was on the Serial Killer Spirits miniseries last year in 2019. And this was because a serial killer named Jake Bird, who was also known as the Tacoma Axe Killer, he was jailed there. In 1925, after he attacked a couple with an axe, he spent some time in the squirrel cage jail before he was shipped to the state penitentiary in Fort Madison. And later, after he like he did some other terrible shit, but in the 1940s, he confessed to killing 44 people around the country. And he was one of the first registered serial killers in the country. Damn. Yeah. But something lingers because of the Jake Bird hex. And as he was being sentenced, he declared, I'm putting a hex, I'm putting the hex of Jake Bird on all of you who had anything to do with me 
being punished. Mark my words, you will die before I do. Shit. So people were like, okay, cool, bye. You know, like, whatever. But people started dying. Oh, shit. First, it was the judge who sentenced him to death. He died of a heart attack, like, very, very soon after the conviction. Then it was his defense lawyer who died of another heart attack. Well, his defense lawyer was his defense lawyer. But he just was part of it. He's part of it. And it's like, you didn't do a good enough job, you know? And then third, it was a police officer who recorded his confession. He died of a heart attack as well. Oh, shit. Then another police officer who wrote the official report on Jake Bird, he died of a heart attack attack. as well. Oh, my God. Yep. And then one of Jake Bird's prison guards died of a heart attack. And then the last person to be with this, I feel like kind of just got thrown on there. It was a court's clerk, and they died of pneumonia. So it was like different than everyone else's, but... It was still part of the whole thing, and it was before Jake Bird died. Damn. So that was just a little aside of, like, they were on there. I'm not going to go into, like, what they had because, you know, it's always what I'm going to tell you later. Like, it was, you know, the normal things, and then Zach, of course, probably got, you know, possessed, possessed. all the things. Aaron was locked probably in the solitary confinement. He got touched, screamed, all, you know, all the things. Can I say that one more time? Even when it was a working prison, there were things that went bump in the night. A jailer in the 1950s, Bill Foster, he chose not to use the fourth floor as his apartment, quote, because of the strange going-ons up there. He said that he would hear people walking around when he knew, like, no one was up there. And so he decided to stay on the second floor with the prisoners instead. Oh, shit. Yeah. So numerous paranormal teams have investigated the jail, and they walked away with enough evidence that they believed it was sufficient enough to say, yeah, this jail's haunted. Damn. Well, I mean... With all the shit that happened there, it's fucking haunted. Yeah. Well, when you walk in, a lot of people say they have this overwhelming feeling of depression and sadness from different cells, which, yeah. Like, yeah. Staff members, they feel cold chills. They've heard unexplained noises, and there's been some objects that have been moved from one place to another, and there's, like, no explanation as to why or how they were moved. Some staff have seen dark shadows move across the stairs or in doorways. People who have been on the museum tours, they felt, like, tugging at their clothes, and some have even left with scratch marks on their body. Also, something common among staff and visitors is the feeling of being watched and followed while in the jail. So, yeah, like all the normal stuff, strange noises, lights turning on and off, phantom footsteps, full body apparitions. Those are all common occurrences in this jail. And the spirits are believed to be former jailers and prisoners. 
One of the ghosts is said to be that of J.M. Carter, and he was the man who oversaw the building's construction and was the first superintendent. And his apparition has been seen on the fourth floor, which he was the first resident of. There's also been other reports of another full-body apparition on the fourth floor, and it's been identified as Otto Goofoth? Question mark, question mark. And he was another former jailer. Museum staff say they don't feel frightened or threatened in any way of these two spirits. So, you know, they're like, they're friendly. They just watch over us. Kind of like, you know, yeah, making sure that they're doing a good job. (laughs) So some of the activity on the fourth floor has been a picture of a male apparition that was taken by an investigator. And you can clearly see it in the window on the fourth floor where the superintendent lived and all the pictures after that did not have a figure in that window. And then you can hear walking, but you know, it's an unseen presence. There's been orbs of course, and cabinet doors have opened by themselves. On the second floor, people have felt fingers go through their hair and run out the side. I mean, I wouldn't object. Right? You're like, um, please yes, play please. with my hair. But the ghost wouldn't like you because you're so particular. Well, I mean, if you're going to do it, do it right. <laughs> Other stuff has been like heavy breathing or sighing and the jingling of keys. I, I mean, feel I feel attacked. attacked. <laughs> yeah, heavy breathing and sighing. I feel attacked. Well, and jingling of keys because I got too much shit on my purse anyway. <laughs> I just carry the one key. Well, I carry the one key, but I have a, I have like three different keychains. <laughs> there are also two ghost cats that have been felt brushing up against people's legs. And some of the groups have heard meows on their recorders or saw little striped cats walking through doorways. One time there was this woman who was working on a project in the building after hours and she said that she had been experiencing some, you know, like weird sensations, some like, okay, I feel like I'm being watched or, you know, whatever. So she was on high alert. She's walking through the building and was very shocked to see this little girl dressed entirely in gray and she just looked very sad and very mournful but she was inside a cell that was locked and there's no way in or out so like Mm -mm. no person could have got in there other people have heard the voice of a little girl on the third and fourth floors and also they have heard a little girl singing and something to note that you say like the spirit could want to be seen as a little girl or an actual girl who was in, like, the juvenile yeah. center. Or who was there with her family. We don't know, you know. And even though there are only four deaths at the jail, it was built on the site of an old church morgue. Mm. Yeah, it was St. Paul's Episcopal Church Morgue. And because of this, it's thought that some of the spirits and energy might be from the morgue as well. So they say that the morgue might account for some of the female spirits and children's spirits, but who knows. In 2005, the 
PRISM group, which is the Paranormal Research and Investigative Studies Midwest. Okay. They spent the night at the jail, and they captured, like, the cabinet door opening by itself three times. They had different spikes and, you know, temperatures that would drop and, you know, all the stuff that you would expect. But then they went back on October 19th, 2012. They were using the ovulus. And, you know, it's the computer-generated speech thing. And they were asking the spirit if the spirit wanted them to leave. And the answer was, yes, get out. Oh, shit. And they said, see ya. No. Oh, I would have. <laughs> well, then, two days after that, on the 20th, one of the investigators received a call on their cell phone. But the phone number that was listed was not a number. Instead... It had the words, get out on it. So, like, instead of saying, like, miss call and then 555-555-555, it said, miss call, get out. Yeah. Okay. And on KCGhost.com, the paranormal activity investigators, they did a walkthrough. And when they were discussing Jake Bird, they heard a loud bang come from the third floor cells, which is where he would have been held. Everyone was accounted for on the property, so, like, no one did that. They also heard a girl singing. And Christina Anderson, one of the investigators, she said that she had the distinct feeling that someone was watching them. And when another investigator took a photo in that location, a human-like figure appeared on the viewing screen. But when he uploaded the photos later... That entire picture was just black. Damn. Becky Ray, who was another investigator, she said that when they were on the first floor in the recreation area, she felt like her left arm was next to something extremely hot. And she checked the wall next to her and it was super cold to the touch. Then she felt a pinch on her right arm. And then she felt someone pulling the hair on the top of her head. And she wasn't standing next to anything that would have caused this reaction. She said that while they were around this picnic table in the same area, she walked to the other side of the cells to see if she could figure out what that strange noise was. And when she looked back to the group, she saw someone that appeared to be watching her from the landing above the men's showers. And she said several times during the night, she got a very uneasy feeling from that exact area. And then I went on hauntedplaces.org and they had it like listed out about this. And then it was like, leave comments if you've been here. And so there were a few comments that I wanted to read. And Michelle, she said on May 6th of 2014, she said that she currently works at the Squirrel Cage Jail. And they just recently had their roof completely redone. And since then, it's been really active, I guess, because it was such a big change for that property. And she said that a couple of months ago, her friend and coworker, they were there in the jail closing up about 4 a.m. because it was after an investigation. And she was walking down the stairs and in the window in front of her, she could see the reflection of a man behind her at the top of the stairs. And then in the window... To the right of her, she saw a little girl in a white dress and long blonde hair. And she said the second she turned to look at her, she was gone. Damn. 
And then one time they had this like, in like quote unquote employee night where they stayed overnight at the jail. Well, they actually slept in the cells. One of her coworkers, who was her bunk mate for the night, had a dream where a creepy guy with a blacked out face was coming at him in the cell that they were. And he woke up screaming. She said she didn't even hear him, but everyone else came to his rescue. That's weird that she was in the cell with him and didn't hear him, but everybody else did. Yeah. I mean, maybe she's a heavy sleeper. I don't know. Then Bill said on September 15th, 2014, that he visited the Squirrel Cage Jail a few years ago. And on their tour, they could hear footsteps behind them. And so he stopped and asked the guide, like, hey, is there another group behind us? And he was like, no, we're the only group in here. And they could hear the footsteps again. So it's like, okay. And then he said that he did like an overnight investigation. And on overnights, you have access to the fourth floor apartment. And his group consisted of six members. Five went inside the apartment and he sat on the landing on the top of the stairs Well, he heard whispering behind him in his right ear, and then the door handle turned, and the door swung open. He slid to the side to move out of the way because he thought someone was coming out, but he turned to see all of them sitting crisscross applesauce on the floor about eight feet away. And so he was like, did you open the door? And everyone was like, nope, it opened by itself. (laughs) Like, we saw that too. Then Cynthia said June 14th, 2016, that they investigated the squirrel cage jail. They did a flashlight experiment in the cell next to Thomas Rifle cell. And that's just where, like, they have the flashlight and they're like, okay, if you're here, turn it on. You know, like, try to make them use the energy to turn it on. And the flashlight turned on six times. Oh, my God. Yeah, and she said that they also got some great EVPs in the infirmary, but, you know, like, it's a comment, so she couldn't leave attachment, so I don't know. And then KB, on February 3rd, 2017, they said that they visited it for a flashlight history tour, and it was not billed as a paranormal hunt, but they were shoved twice to the point that if someone hadn't caught them, they would have fallen flat on their face, and... That happened to them twice, about 10 minutes apart, on two completely different levels. It wasn't just like, oh, you know, something was on the ground or whatever. It's like, that's kind of fishy in two different areas for it to happen. Well, and I had to <laughs> I have to end on this one because, you know, trolls are real and they're everywhere. And so our dear one... August 15th, 2017, he said, I caught Bigfoot masturbating in one of the jail cells. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like Donna always says, if you're going to be a troll, at least be funny. Yes. I was like, I have to keep this. This is too funny. Pictures or it didn't happen one. Right? Oh, my gosh. Well, that is it about the squirrel cage shell. The thought of being in one of those cells and you be on the spinny end where you don't have an exit, it's in shivers down my spine. Like it, like it kind of makes me have a hard time breathing. Yeah. You know? Well, just the pie shaped of the gel cells that mm-hmm. it all goes towards the toilet and like it's, 
Oh, God. I don't know. It's just... Mm-mm. Look, I'm a I big can't girl, handle it. and I'm a big girl. You know, I got to lean over to wipe, and you ain't gonna have no room up in <laughs> oh, that thing. God. Oh God, <laughs> she went there, y'all. Well, you won't be seeing uh, MSNBC up in there doing lockup. No, definitely not. Too bad. I love that show. That used to be her going to bed show, and then they then Forensic Files came on all the time, and ID really got with it, and now I have a smorgasbord, and I can't decide what to watch. <laughs> Well, you can't figure out your nighttime thing, but I want to know about your girl's skincare. It didn't work. It might. Well, okay. And it's laced with arsenic and lead and mercury. So there's that. I mean, I can dilute it. God. I wonder, like, I mean, something worked. Like, it's probably just like the moisturizer in it is what truly like helped people but there was some that was even supposed to be to get rid of your grays and it's like but it didn't have any dye in it so you know it's like some of this stuff you're like what the what how how did you how you believe that you know yeah but it's so easy to say that when you're not wrapped up in it and you're not doing the things in secrecy and all that and that was the beauty of her con yeah she could Get away with anything because nobody's going to report her because they don't want to be shamed and shunned. Because they don't want to end up in the squirrel cage jail. Well, makeup wasn't illegal. (laughs) What she did was. Yes. How much money would it take for you to spend a night in one of the cells with it turned? Well, it would be impossible to do that. Well, let's just say that I got some WD-40 and I made the shit spin. (laughs) Nothing, I'd do it for the podcast. You'd spend a night alone in that cell with no fucking way out? Well, I want you to spend the night in the next cell with no way out. (laughs) (laughs) If I'm going down, honey, you are too. I didn't ask about me. I said (laughs) how much money for you to do it. I'm codependent. It's free, but it... On contingency, you're with me. I do it for all my debt paid. Like, house, student loans. Well, shit. No one can afford all that. (laughs) (laughs) I do a lot of shit for student loans to be paid off. Okay, how much money would it take for you to spend a whole night in the solitary confinement cell? Okay, did you not hear when I said I might just have to wedge myself? Which is why I'm asking. I don't know. My legs would give out. That's why I'm asking. I'm not a flamingo. <laughs> you so damn short. You could probably sit long-legged in there. Nah, not in that. <laughs> not in that. <laughs> and my legs too big to fit between those bars. <laughs> Your ankle could. <laughs> nah. <laughs> and and then, then the shit would turn, and then you'd lose a foot. <laughs> okay, but for real, for real, how much money? Um. $10,000. Oh, see, I was going like 500 a million. 500,000. I'm a cheap bitch, apparently. I mean, what would I do for a Klondike bar? A lot. I mean, I would do it for probably less. <laughs> like 100. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> okay, y'all tell us what y'all think. How much money would it take for y'all to try one of those two things? Let us know and remember creep it real and, and don't, don't get, get scared. scared.